When does government overreach become oppression? In our past, we've seen tyrants darken the pages of history. But throughout time, revolutionaries have pushed back against the tide. Welcome to Canter Encounter. Welcome to Candor Encounter, Yo. guys. <laughs> Full house. <laughs> see, we, we just pack everybody in at the same time. Let's see who can talk all at once. <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome back to Candor Encounter. I'm Chris. I'm David. I'm Sean. And I love that song, dude. It's just that's such a <laughs> yeah. like, tribal warrior feel to it. We love choosing it's, music at the beginning yeah. of every episode. It's like our favorite part. We spend way too long. We spent a pretty good amount of time today. <laughs> And we barely even had the much, that much to listen to. But it's all part of it, and it's the one of the parts that we love. Oh, so. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's a hype song. You're right. I love it. So we're bringing you today to talk about the ethics, the ethical questions that arise around the idea of revolution, the concept of government overthrow, I think there is a big philosophical mm. question hanging in the air around this. What do you guys feel? How did you feel before you you took up the the keyboard and mouse? Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say something well, more. I, w- I was trying to make I'm all pen and paper. <laughs> I was trying to make an analogy to taking up the sword, but it didn't work. But that's okay. So, how did you feel before you started? Well, obviously, there is a point to where it is ethical. I think, anyway, that's just like... I think we're all going to end up there today. Yeah, Yeah, so, I mean, the basic premise behind there being, for sure, a reason would be that evil exists. Yeah. Like, tyrants Mm, exist. Absolutely. You can't can't say that never overthrowing the government is... Like the answer. Yeah, they obviously yeah. don't always get it right. And it's really probably cliche, but you can use Hitler as the example because it's so very clearly right, right. personified mm-hmm. evil mm-hmm. and malevolence. And it's time and time throughout history very clear that there are people who are dangerous to humanity as a whole. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And to freedom and to all of those things that we hold dear. So there is definitely a line that can be crossed. And that's what we're here to talk about today is really where that line stands. I don't know where I put my line just because I I haven't thought about it so much. But I mean, I part of me feels like it's kind of not the kind of thing where a super hard line is drawn, but you know, it gets to a point and then things like boil over. Right. Yeah. I don't think you can like, you can put a number of conditions on the table and be like, these are the things that would make like 
sense to overthrow the government. Yeah, these are things that would like. Yeah, yeah. but it's like there are also things that like might make sense even though you didn't list them. Right. So like Hitler is like obviously someone worth revolting against if he's, well, I mean, he was affecting the whole world at that point. But I mean, even on a smaller scale, right, it was right. your own land or government. Uh, he's on like the far end though. But I think that anybody who who crosses that line, that line of violence, right? So there are a, there are gray areas where you wonder, oh, is it ethical for us to do this? Yeah, it's like... But then there are hard you, lines yeah, where it's black and white. Yeah, you have to take that first step. Like, as a revolutionary, mm-hmm. you have to be the one that steps forward because they're already doing the stuff they need to do to get whatever they need done. You're talking about those in power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like, they're already in a position to do the things they need. Whereas you as a revolutionary would need to gather people, spread the idea, and get people behind you, because otherwise it's not going to work. Mm, yeah. Otherwise, you're just an assassin. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm actually going to bring, I'm going to talk about that as well a little bit later. Not assassin part, but about the spreading of the idea and and how that actually plays into personal responsibility and how much of it is just you being a terrorist and how much of, you know, oh, when does that shift over mm-hmm. into being revolution or rebellion, you know, but before I did any research, I think that it, re- I really fell in this camp where I just assumed everything was gray and subjective to that particular country or government or whatever, Yeah, I except mean, for human rights. Like you should definitely be rebelling if they're, your leader is, you know, killing people and, genocide is going right, on. Right, that's right. sort of what I meant. Right. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to, I guess. It's like, how is it really affecting the people, like, bottom line? It's like, uh, like, well, what do you guys think of, like, China? Do you think it would be worth rebelling in China if, if you lived there? Like, just, I mean, I know we all have relatively surface level knowledge about it, but, but I, we know it's bad, right? Well, I mean, I would say... So this, I mean, plays a little bit into the question I was bringing up a minute ago about about the spread of the idea and how popular the idea of revolution is among your peers, about uh, you know, among your countrymen. I know that an idea has to start somewhere, and that's where this gets complicated for me mm-hmm. because I think you do go from being just a you know, a, a terrorist, like if the idea of overturning your government is unpopular, that's what you're going to be labeled because you're an extremist in that right, right. perception. Yeah, you know? That's true. Yeah. And so you're probably not going to come out on top and you're probably not going to shift the outcome because there's not enough momentum behind you. But at the same time, like somebody has to, light that fire mm-hmm. and you might be looked at differently in history books but right. yeah it's really hard to like i mean simply going up against the government is a dangerous thing uh, regardless oh, pretty much because they they always have so much power but you specifically um, asked a question about china and i think i would say i mean we have our biases especially as westerners so, uh, that's true <laughs> um we're definitely going to look at this situation differently than someone who is raised 
within that system and who might feel differently. But I obviously think very strongly that freedom is important and autonomy is important. And those are things that China is restrictive on. And I definitely believe that altering their trajectory, changing course away from communism is super important, but I mean, they have billions of people there and if they felt that way, it would be transforming already. Right. So obviously we are different and have different perspectives than the citizens do. But if I were like dropped in the middle of China, (laughs) right. Right. Yeah. Then I would definitely not want to participate in that. Right. 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 And I think if I had, especially if I had nothing to lose, like if I, it's easy to say that when you have nothing to lose. Like if I was dropped in there alone with no family, no, nothing to, you know, to risk, uh, then uh, yeah, I would probably say I would do everything in my power to right, right. alter the system and become a revolutionary. But that's also hypothetical and easy to do and way more difficult to yeah. say. Yeah. And fam- easy to say and way more difficult to do. And families that's are a good point. really important there. Like family names. Uh, oh, yeah. being within a family. Is and very, it's an very honor important. society. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if you make a decision that could reflect badly on you, it doesn't just reflect badly on you. It reflects badly on people older than you that are within your family because it's like, Oh, you didn't either raise this kid right or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then also the, either your young ones or like brother and sister's young ones where it's like, you are around that person. And that is dangerous. Yeah, it's like a less extreme version of like North Korea where, you know, when you go against the system, your entire family gets put in labor camps, you know. So so they have a lot to lose. Yeah. And and that's part of the design of the system. You know, it's it's meant to keep them in place and in what we would consider subjugation. Mm -hmm. So what about you, Sean? What do you feel about China? Like, how would you... I'm with you. I mean, yeah, speaking hypothetically, it never, like in my head, it's always as if I had nothing to lose. And yeah, I agree. I would. Yeah, yeah. I believe it's a dangerous exactly. way. Of, and I mean, yeah, they're they're on the downward spiral for sure. So as far as our perspectives before we got into anything, I really feel like we probably were all in that range. Yes, yeah, like there are some things that are definitive and then there are a couple that are extraneous and depend on circumstance. Right. And I mean a, a lot of it is a bit contextual like we talked about in the beginning like you know just the situation of the government like what it needs to sustain itself along with the people and the decisions can mean I think that really in my opinion most solutions revolve around less government Intervention and even recoveries, even, even economic recoveries. Definitely. Um, And I think that they push anytime there is this intervention from the government to inject some kind of economic stimulus, economic uh, adrenaline, you know, 
breathability. Yeah, that so in the long run, it. it ends up costing us. Yeah. Well, it's like, so we stepped away from the gold standard. Who was it? 1971. 1971. No, that was not FDR, I don't think at all. President Richard Nixon. Nixon, Nixon that Nixon. was it. But it was like stepping away from the gold standard allowed for the adjustment of the value of the American dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from the actual wealth that America had. Yeah. And being able for that the value of the dollar to change was... Yeah, no longer attached to a fixed asset. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was more of an idea. Well, it did. It became an imaginary currency. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it, it's just a, essentially a, an agreed upon contract, you know, just arbitrary price. Yeah, a social contract. <laughs> Stepping away from the gold standard really changed the timeline of where the government would go with that money. Being able to artificially adjust how much value money is worth, I feel like is a step, a step against the average civilian. Yeah, I mean it's, yeah, because it allows you to freely take advantage. Yeah, exactly, and manipulate a system. That's basically what I was about to say. Yeah, it just affects like the whole bottom line, but they're at the top. So. Yeah. I mean, they hey, made the system. They made the freaking system. <laughs> so that that was the point I was trying to get to. I completely forgot the fact that adjusting the value of a dollar, it, it, just that in and of itself, is enough. Uh, not enough for a revolution, I don't think, but enough to be like questioning. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, it opens up the door to the question: Where is that line, and how much responsibility? Yeah, exactly. First of all, I think it should. And this is something I hadn't really thought about before, but I mean, I, I probably would have agreed with its premise had I thought about it. But there are underlying ideas or not ideas, transgressions, crimes, I guess you could say, whether it be corruption or abusing the rights of the citizens, there are extenuating reasons that you could essentially become a revolutionary or decide that it's time to overthrow the government. But the key point is, can you solve that problem with the system you have in place? So yeah, it, I mean, there are costs to revolution. There's bloodshed a lot of times. And I mean, there are bloodless revolutions, but they are rare, very rare. But I would say that there needs to be no recourse. You know, like the founders really pursued and what's the word for? Advocated. Uh, they pleaded with the king of england oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. they wanted peace yeah, yeah. yeah they made their case and they attempted to do it in a way that wasn't yeah revolutionary i also feel like that's not mentioned 
at all yeah. in oh, history books. Right. Not, not too much, like, no. I definitely didn't get taught that while I was in school. Yeah. They were like, yeah, this, this, and this happened. And then they left, and then the king pursued them. Yeah. No, I mean, they, a lot of them. They, they pleaded for years well, to the king. some of them were actual, I, I think the term is magistrates, but they had power. I mean, some of them were just, you know, landowners and politicians and things, but a lot of people that were involved in the revolution were direct representatives of the King. They had like magistrative, is that a word? I don't know. Powers. They were sort of representative of the local. They had the authority. Right, right, right. Right. right, As leaders in the colonies, but they were representatives of the crown and there, that was the recourse that was through them that the message of of the change and the altering of the relationship with England was they were trying trying to make it happen that way. And so they went through this process and went directly to the king. We sent people to meet with the king. Uh and there were lots of right they were like diplomats. Yeah, diplomats. That's, not that's like lawyers. And so there was a process where we tried to solve our problem by the system that was in place. And when that failed, when um, all of the demands for representation and, and things like that were not met, then it was decided that revolution had to happen. But, Part of the key there is, and we're just specifically at this moment talking about the American Revolution, but... If that wasn't obvious. Yeah, I mean, but just as an example, like there are, and this is my belief as an American, I believe that liberty is something that has to be preserved, right? And that it's the government's job to preserve it. That's why it Mm -hmm. exists, And they say that in the Declaration of Independence, you know, I mean, it's just the whole reason for government to exist is to protect the natural rights that already exist, that are God-given. Right, right. So those rights exist beyond the government. They existed before the government. And the government's job is to protect its citizens' rights. It's just like, yeah, a body of that, those natural rights. But that in itself of the time was a revolutionary idea, you know, to think that wasn't really a popular idea at the time to think that governments were like imposing. Yeah. They were authoritarian and the idea of the, of the colonies. A lot of them let off of the, like, uh, it began with like the, I am like the Pope, like the Pope is the one who tells the King what to do and like what rules make sense. And then for other countries, it was like, I am a representative of this God. Yeah. Like that's how it began. And then people just kind of left, let it be. And then transitioned down to, Oh, I'm just a man, but I own you. Yeah. Into monarchy. Yeah. Yeah. And this, Lockean idea, this I idea about natural rights, um, that men are already imbued 
with the right to live and the right to be free, it birthed the idea that government serves the people, the people instead of the people serving the government. And so now that that idea has taken hold in humanity, especially the Western world, it, to me, it's not something that I'm willing to let go of. I agree. Yeah. It's like, I think that that is the right way to look at the rights of man. But the, a lot of the original colonists, uh, the founding fathers, they were. They wrote a lot. Yeah. They were very familiar with John Locke and his writings and studied him a lot and used him um, throughout the birth of America and creating documents to support the idea that men were to be free and governments were to serve the purpose of protecting the rights of man. And so this idea transformed the idea of rebellion, I think, because you weren't really, you weren't free to rebel ever before this point. Right. right? I mean, you're never, there's never okay because it always was a top-down authoritarian design, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I mean, Rome, the Romans were a little different in that sense, but it was a very military. Yeah, yeah. Rome was it, uh, its own thing. It was a military state, and so that's maybe a democracy, but it's yeah. They had like the Senate, and so. I was saying, I think this idea of how we view rebellion changed when America had its revolution because... Or at least for this government type. Yeah, I mean, it definitely changes. Like, if you were to ask, when is it okay to overthrow the United States government? That's a big... That's a different question because we have a constitutional republic we have a representative government who is voted and we have a lot more of a voice than some of the other types of government right and so we have recourse that a lot of governments don't have so if you're i don't i don't know if you're i mean let's go extreme let's just say north korean right so you're just in this very very restrictive regime yeah breathe wrong yeah Kind of thing. And you have this idea. You've heard of this radical idea from the West that every man is free. And it's just transforming who you are. And you realize around you, you know, the veil is lifted and you can see the wizard. Yeah, the the glass shatters. And but yeah, it's... it's Veil is lifted and you see this... Yeah, the veil. The entirely different world. Yeah, you see a whole country of, yeah. of your peers... Just droning. Yeah. Blindly submitting to the authority who is, uh, you know, imprisoning a bunch of people and killing people or whatever. And they're just crazy. They're just nuts. And you just realize that you've been living in this dream world. Right. And you're waking up from the matrix, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that someone like that could very well view they wouldn't have as much ambiguity ambiguity about 
oh, what is the right thing to do? Yeah. Versus someone who is in this system who is like struggling for like, where is the point for me? Right. Right. And that's, that's the gray area that I, you know, am trying to wade through. Cause I think yeah, the, the beginnings of a revolution for another person would be like, well, this means like my entire family and extended family die. Yeah. And they have a, a very high cost. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, which is why it maintains itself. Something that's completely different in America. Like if it, a individual does something horrific, it is only that individual is blamed. Right. Only that individual. No one like around them. Even if they were representing an entire state. Yes. Like even if they were, you know, in charge of something huge, it was their responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that as we examine their decisions, people's choices, I guess I should say, as to whether or not it's ethical to rebel it's obviously a subjective question. There is no like handbook for this. Right. Right. But when people experience, it's not even, it's not even like they're threatened with it. Like they've seen it happen. So it's very real to them. Yeah. And to who? The people threatened with, like, uh, you and your family will disappear. Oh, I mean, they've, Say something yeah. like they've seen they've their, seen yeah. friends just. Yeah, neighbors just vanish. Yeah. yeah. And, <clears throat> I mean, those are sort of like the violent tyrants. Oh, yeah, those are the. The black and white right. cases, right? And the places where it gets muddy is, is like I was talking about in America, is, I mean, I think there is a point in America and I think our founders believed that there was a point in America where mm-hmm. we had to take up arms and fix what was broken. But finding that line is really, really hard because they left you so many avenues of change. Yeah. 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 And well so said. Yeah. if you can't, you know, you always feel like there's, there's more you can do. You mm-hmm. always feel like, Oh, well next election, we're going to try this so and so right and i think there we do approach a point of no return with diminishing influence Uh, i think i might have talked about this on the podcast before but i don't i actually didn't bring the numbers with me because it this point didn't actually hit me till now but you know, back whenever we voted to have so many representatives per number of population, you know. Oh, uh, that population was much lower. Yeah, the population density per yes, I do remember this. representative was much lower. And I, I might have even had the numbers on that podcast. I can't remember. But basically, our vote, our support, our opinion of whoever is in charge in the Senate. Um, uh, well, I, whoever is in charge on Capitol Hill is so diminished over time that it doesn't really make a difference. You just don't, they're not accessible. It's not, 
change is not really in the cards for the everyday American. Mm-hmm. You know, we have what the state has two people, but they have like, I don't know. There's like 453 congressmen. I right. Think. Like the house of representatives. Yes. Yeah. And that, I think that's right. The electoral college, but even that, even that is not, no, I mean that, that's still within the hundreds for 5 million people. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, you see, that's a problem because, well, this is just getting political now. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but uh, it's just, just give the power to back to the states, you know? That's the solution. Yeah. It is, it is. and Because then you don't have to worry about this large scale if, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if your decision making is put into your, your state You're house. You're about to be blown away. I'm 105 ready. members. For what? That's it? Well, 105 of the... Uh, are you talking about in the state of Alabama? Or are you talking about in the country? The House of Representatives. The House, yeah, the House of Representatives. But essentially what I'm trying to say is the farther the power gets from the people, the oh, closer yeah. they get to, to losing... A voice within... Well, I'm talking about the government gets closer to losing its authority, essentially. Because when it doesn't speak for the people anymore, it becomes tyrannical. And when it becomes a self-perpetuating machine to feed itself, rather than the needs of its citizens, to serve its citizens, I think that day... The day of revolution would follow on the back of that. That's what I think. And I think that it would be ethically sound to do so. But in light of preserving liberty Mm. of every American. Now, I mean, a whole completely different podcast is what an American revolution would look like (laughs) in the 21st century. But that was really well said, though. I totally agree. So that's how I view the American experiment and its line on the revolution. But like I said, other governments and other systems and other lines in the sand are different. Yeah, we don't know them well enough to. Yeah. And like, I mean, they're so complex, so it's not like we can get yeah, a, a great understanding I mean, there are situations you can sort of speculate on. Like, Mm. if I were a Russian, I would not be happy with my government. Yeah. If I was aware of what's going on because of all the propaganda they feed their citizens. But I wouldn't be supporting what my government is doing. I would be against my own government, you know. And so, as an aggressor, you know. So, there are different judgments that a citizen could level on its, on its government. But and it's like, we live in a place where we can talk about this freely, mm-hmm. interact with the government safely, openly. Yeah. yeah. There are a few that you can't. And that's just uh, horrible. Well, right. I mean, just that fact alone that you can't question the government, yeah. I think automatically constitutes. Puts you, yeah. yeah that's I mean, like, 
red flag number one. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's fully allowable at that's that point. That's one of those black and white moments where yeah. it's just mm-hmm. like, yeah, that that's one of those lines that you just can't have. Yeah, I, I think that it's fully supportable to engage in rebellion when you can't talk about when you can't talk openly about your government, speak openly about your government. Mm. When you are censored or physically endangered by doing so, you have an oppressive government. So period, case closed, <laughs> you're you're allowed to fight back. Yeah, wham, yeah. bam, thank you, ma'am. Exactly. <laughs> Overthrow that son of a gun. <laughs> so we talked about the government's job as far as the Western perspective is to protect the rights of man. And that is so that man can can survive and prosper, right? Now, when the government decides they know what's best for your safety and security versus your freedom that's a big red flag too. Like it's, they may not be openly censoring. Right. Well, but yeah, you have they, to watch. They realize they can't be right. That's the, that's the mm. thing you have to keep an eye out for those like little, little things. There are levels of manipulation that you have to look for because they're not nearly as blatant as you might think. Mm hmm. And I guess that's you you kind of got where I was going with that. It's it's it can be deceptive what they're doing. Absolutely. It's not all it may be a black and white decision if you find out what they're doing, but it's not always easy to know what's happening. And the steps to get to those can be deceptive as well. I mean, when you embrace the idea of human autonomy, you can't simultaneously embrace the idea that the government always knows what's in your best interest. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, or wants or wants. Yeah. Every move toward more security is a sacrifice in freedom. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so as they attempt to coddle you into comfort, they're just placating you and taking away rights. That's how that's the progression that happens. And so that's what has to be watched out for. But those are the signs that as an American that I would be looking for, you know, to advise me of like, oh, this is not going the way it's supposed yeah. to go. I need to figure out where I align now, you know, like or who I align with or whatever. That's the type of behavior, the, the controlling and corrupt behavior of a government that would lead me to join that kind of side. Yeah, me too, 100%. There are decisions that the government makes that I'm not happy with, but like at this point in time, overthrow isn't an option. Or not not an option, I want to say it that way, isn't on the table. Yeah. But it's like, there are some decisions between the beginning of when you were made and now that I am not happy with, and I would like them undone. Right. Yeah. 
And also, even in a situation where things become untenable and. And some decisions are permanent. Like you. Oh, yeah. Like the gold standard. Like the gold standard. Right. Where you you, you've gotten so far away, you can't reattach yourself. No. Yeah. You'd have to do what Nixon did in reverse. And well, what we would have to do is acknowledge how bloated the currency has become. Yes. Yeah. And to do that well, would yeah. be catastrophic. Yeah, that's what I mean. So when Nixon did away with the gold standard, didn't he like confiscate a bunch of gold from the citizens? Did he? I don't I don't, I don't know, know if he did. I don't know about that. Oh, I thought I heard that. Oh, don't take it as you're wrong. I just don't know. Right. Yeah, I don't know either. But that's what I mean is like that would basically be what we have to do with the American dollars right now is like take it all back, back it with gold, reprint, basically, right? Yeah, but a hard reset like that would be just yeah, like like I don't is is it like I don't even feasible? I don't even know that (laughs) you'd have have to like restart everything at that point, really. Yeah, be like, all right, we're taking a month off, everybody. (sighs) A month. But oh, then, that's just to get the money. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, you still have to reevaluate every dollar that's in the yeah. economy. And it's like, it's just near impossible. But because you set up a system that's supposed to be self-corrective. And what you did was you you put it into the hands of manipulators mm-hmm. rather than being self-corrective. Yeah. yeah. And when you let a market that's supposed to take care of itself based on a standard and then you change that into a moving target, a moving standard, it's not, you can't go backwards with it. Oh, and like, uh, I think David said earlier, and this is in regards to like hitting the reset button. It's so much harder to do because everything's so interconnected, especially with the American economy. Like, Oh my God. Like that would yeah, destroy ha- economies all over the world. Yeah, probably. having your finger in every pie has its yeah. benefits, but it's it's negative is that it affects everyone if you make a change. And rebellion also, just like the financial system, affects exact- people like that. Like it has this broad spread pattern. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, it, like it's infectious, you mean? Almost? Well, no, not necessarily infectious, but a, a rebellion in America would affect everything, including the economy. And all of those effects would ripple out yeah. into other countries. It's a collateral damage yeah. situation. How other than economical does it affect other countries, though? Well, because of the centrality of America to the world economic system, it's, I mean, other than China, America really drives the world economy. Yeah. And as far as the impact to other countries, it would just, it would be enormous. It would be enormous. And I mean, imagine I admit that I could probably be blowing and, that a little well, bit because of, I hear American news and that's where I learned about how America don't forget drives. It's like, and it would be, yeah, it would be imagine insane news. The, the superpower of, of America disappeared over the next few days right? because of a revolution. What would happen to the rest of the world? I'm not saying like, oh, we've gone missing. Like, that's a lot of land up for grabs and no government to technically be there. Oh. Oh, yeah. They'd so, swoop in when we're on our, on our, on our, 
knees bloody yeah. after a revolution or yeah. during. That's true. It's been known to happen. Oh yeah, it's true. Hmm. I mean, a week. Yeah, I mean, we'd be when we're turning our backs on the world and looking inward to deal with this massive problem that we have. It would be the prime time. Yeah, I said that for our adversaries to link together. Yeah. I don't know exactly what would happen. Something would happen. I know that that's for a sure. good point, though. Yeah. And if you, I mean, I'm I'm talking real doomsday stuff here, so like, <laughs> just bear with me. It's very conspiratorial, I guess. Um, I don't know. Have you guys? <laughs> so tangential. Nope. I don't All right, care. We're, we're going on it. I Come don't on. care. Uh, have you guys done any? Lit, like reading or listening to information related to EMP uh, yep. attacks on the United States. Yep. This was pretty big. Um, a couple, of, say a couple of years ago, it was back in high school. So like eight years ago or something. Uh, there were talks about like North Korea having a new EMP. Mm-hmm. I think I remember that a little. Do you, do you guys understand the dangers of an EMP? Oh, absolutely. No. So, as far as the weakest link in the chain, America's infrastructure is our weakest link. So, our dependence on energy, our dependence on a moving economy. Because if we have a stall, if if the highways shut down... I mean, think of the stock market crash anything. or the government... Um, right. Going quiet for a couple of days. Like it, it was all stopped. You just think about your town when the power goes out. Mm-hmm. Think about what it's like when the power's out for three days. Everything in your, pauses. In your city. It just like brings everything to a grinding yep. halt, right? Nobody can buy anything. Nobody can get gas. Nobody can get food, yep. water, heat, whatever. America's energy infrastructure is extremely vulnerable to EMP blasts. Now, EMP blasts are nu- – well, I'm talking about a nuclear EMP. I mean, yeah, there are so, things like as small as transformers can uh, be an artificial EMP. Yeah. So a high-altitude EMP, nuclear EMP detonation can cover like almost the entire eastern seaboard oh. in one, in one yep. weapon, one warhead launched no. from – there are ways to get around it. Like a Faraday cage is a good example. Um, well, there are, there are nearly zero practical ways. Oh be- yeah, absolutely. Especially economy wide. Right. So independently you can prepare yourself and there are definitely ways to do that. Like you said, Faraday cages around sensitive yep. electronics and things like that. Um, but the entire energy infrastructure of America is Gone. totally yep. open to EMP detonation. Yeah, right, right. And what's going to happen, th- this is, I, I've i listened to many experts talk, and some on Capitol Hill, about this particular danger. So imagine, okay, so our energy system relies on um, high-voltage transformers. To We transport voltages, voltages long distances, and then we have to step down those voltages for residential and commercial use. Okay. So when we do that, we have to have high voltage transformers. High voltage transformers take about 18 months to produce. Okay. Take their, that long? Their production process is about 18 months. Wow. 
and there are limited suppliers and limited supplies of these transformers. Yeah. Now, in one EMP blast, we can knock out the entire back inventory of American, uh, of American-made high-voltage transformers. And so we are extremely vulnerable. We'll be out. We'll be out, and it'll be 18 months before. Let's just imagine Perfect world. Atlanta, Georgia cannot get power for 18 months. It would be longer than that, probably, because it's like, you know, and that's just. There has to be a place that can produce these things. And what if the EMPs hit there, too? And there's already so few of them that it's like. Yes. Yeah. So a, a, Welcome a to well-planned. The <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a well-planned, and, and so when an EMP blast goes out, these electromagnetic waves <coughs> cast down toward the earth, and they're picked up in all of these electronic, uh, I mean, all of these power lines like antenna. They absorb these electromagnetic waves, and they travel along the lines, and then as they reach the high-voltage transformers, as they reach transformers, they just explode. Yep. They just detonate like bombs. Which, transformers, by the way. They would extend that, like transformers exploding cause in a, ver- a localized EMP. Yeah, domino effect. Yeah, yeah. So, so it could then travel more, and it will, and it will travel into your. It no, will travel tra- through the air and into your car. I was gonna say, right? Be aware, like a, a transformer exploding won't take out a whole city. Yeah. We're talking like four houses. Right, right. But the substation transformers, the tran- the high voltage oh, yeah, transformers, absolutely. as soon as those go out. They don't, they don't have enough for the city. They don't have enough. And they can't get your city back online. Now, what just happened to your city happened to all the cities around you. And they can't get back online. Now, all of these cities are crying to the manufacturers for high-voltage transformers. So they're not going to be able to keep up. So as these cities go down, your cars are no longer working. Your computers, your phones, your cell phones... Everything stops working. Your laptop, not plugged into anything, is fried from the electromagnetic waves in the air. Your car, same thing. Your phone, same thing. Your cash register, same thing. Nothing works. No power. Your water pumps at your local water at your local um, water treatment facility fail. It's just a domino effect, right? So your water systems go down. Your sewage treatment goes down. Yeah, and we're talking... Your food supply disappears. Your trucks can't drive on the road. And we're talking just three of these. The whole country would blanket the whole country. Yeah. And these don't even have to impact land. So these are high-altitude detonations. So we have to catch these warheads before they ever reach... Atmosphere. (laughs) Yeah, before they ever reach the... range. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually more beneficial for them to to detonate in high altitude because of the EMP spread. All of this happening, we were talking about America being on its knees earlier, and you just imagine what kind of place we would be in. Imagine 30 days into the situation, just, just 30 days. What do you think it's like in America? Like, it's almost unimaginable. The, they... They have game planned this in in the threat assessment committees and the threat assessment studies right. uh, for our self defense, our American defense, and I just they have predicted that within 
six months, 90% of Americans would probably be dead. I believe it. Like a ridiculous amount of people that are dead. I don't know that it would be that severe, but I would say this. I can imagine just what Decatur would be like, just like living in Decatur oh, and what yeah. it would be like when no one has food and water and yeah, sanitation. You just, Literally all you can do you is... You just straight up have to live off the land. Yep. But it, but but see, 70,000 people in this city can't live off the yeah. land. If it hits the fan, here's my <laughs> advice. Get as far away from the city as you can also immediately. True. Don't wait. Because... It takes a long time to travel in that kind of situation, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You're walking. Mm-hmm. So get out now because roving bandit gang, it's just going to get right. bad. It's going to get really bad because people are going to try to find a way to feed themselves oh, and yeah. feed their families. And it's going to get, it's going to turn into self-preservation. And the only way you're going to survive that is to not be there. And one of the hardest parts about EMPs is like, when it happens, it's instantaneous. Oh, yeah. There's no planning. There's no prep. There's no escaping. You don't even no. get like, there's a sun on the horizon. No. Atom bomb just went off way over there. You don't even get that. No. It's just everything gone. Yeah. Yeah, you could be at work 20 miles away from your house. And you got to figure out how to get home now. You don't have a car. Hey, if I get trapped in Nuttville, I'm not coming back. <laughs> if you're on vacation, sorry. <laughs> Might be good if you're on vacation, oh, depending true. on where you're on oh, vacation. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Not Las Vegas, but if you're in a remote cabin in the mountains, j- just stay. Just stay there. Don't. If you're in Death Valley, yeah. leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I went way off topic, but basically, uh, there. Anyway, yeah. So that's a huge, <laughs> huge risk to America. Mm-hmm. I've never yeah, even thought vulnerability about vulnerability to EMP. Really? Not well. It I was, mean, it like, was a big talk back in high school. Like I thought about it, right? And like. Uh, I watched Revolution, so I had the idea. Right. The severity of it didn't occur to me. And I don't remember what the cause in the show was for the blackout. It might have been EMPs or something else. But I didn't know how powerful EMPs were is what I'm was getting it a, at. Yeah. Hold was it a solar discharge? I think it was. Or like a like corona that. blast or whatever yeah. they call it. But I think in like... Oh, coronal ejection. Yes. Yeah. I think they found out it was a governmental thing at the end. And it's been so long. It wasn't like they, it was like propaganda. But yeah, I mean, it's essentially the same premise. I mean, a coronal ejection would, yeah, be, right. would be a, a very, it'd probably be more widespread across the world. I mean, True, we, we but got that one, is something that could. We got one kind of recently that knocked out of like, yeah, I think I a few that. neighborhoods. They say it's like, um, it's just a ticking time bomb. Like, we're going to get hit. Oh, it, it's going to, it happens more and more. And, and there's going to be like huge ones that really, really, really hurt. So um, we didn't even talk about that in our how humankind. Yeah, I know. But because we'll survive <laughs> it. Like, if yeah, right. Humankind. Oh, will yeah. Survive, it's not an you know, it's existential not threat until. Yeah, yeah. Until it freaking blows up. Yeah. <laughs> but if you had just imagined America, you were talking about America on its knees, and that is our one of our biggest vulnerabilities. If uh, an opponent can put us in a place like with an EMP where we have to, I mean, that breaks. we have to manage the risk of our own survival. Then we're no longer in a place 
to to have any yeah. control or defense. And yeah, so, yeah, that's what I was thinking earlier. Like at that point, if they drop the EMPs, they could even just like come right over and that was just wreak havoc on their own. And exactly. we, we they, and because we're EMPed, we'd have no way of knowing either. So I, I had talked about Faraday cages. Oh, we, we would, and I didn't put. What do you two mean? In, we would have a way of knowing. Yeah, yeah, we would. I didn't. I'll have, tell you about it. I didn't put two and two together. Um, but the military has just put all of our equipment in a metal cage that I didn't really like. It was just a, pl- a locker. Really? Like that was it in my head. But no, they would act as Faraday cages. Yeah. So that diverts yeah. all the electromagnetic mm-hmm. waves around the object rather we than put penetrating of, Yeah. We put all of our equipment, save for weapons, because they're just metal. Yeah. <laughs> Metal and gunpowder and yeah, copper. But they're safe from EMP. Yeah. But yeah, that's what that's what I'm saying. Like everything else goes in a locker, and it makes sense that those are in a Faraday cage. I mm-hmm. didn't even like think of that the whole time I was in the military. What were you going to tell me, Chris? Oh, uh, you were talking about we um, wouldn't know. we wouldn't know about them coming for us. But actually, uh, the U.S. has a a I don't know how big I can't remember how big it is. It, there's so many planes. There may be four or three. I can't remember. But there, you know those big um, radar planes, the ones with the big like bubble on the top. Yeah. You, the big, have you big seen discs. them? I don't yeah. know what they're called, but I know what you're talking about. But they scan the skies. That's that's their job. And there's there's always so many of them in the air, oh, like okay. at all times, twenty four hours a day. And the reason behind that is solely because if we ever lost all of our uh, ground radar that we would have functioning self-defense, nuclear self-defense. And so, cause we have to be able to attack respond. and respond yeah. know where they are, notice missiles coming, things like that. And so we actually have roving planes in hmm. the air 24 seven that actually map our skies. Uh, there no are idea. also two UAVs always hovering above, uh, of course, these would be taken by an EMP, but there are always two UAVs above DC. And at least, I think it was like five, four or five around the country that roam the skies at all times. They land and another takes off, or another takes off and they go land, hmm. refuel, reset. And I think I may be wrong about this fact, but I'm pretty sure they're reinforced against EMPs, these planes. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. It would make sense for them to. Right. Or at least they're they're like electronics or something like, but they're 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 there for this exact reason that and actual nuclear war like they're yeah there to maintain the radars, especially on the coasts. Yeah, I imagine a naval invasion would be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really have to expand on that, I guess. <laughs> so. One point I would like to bring up, but a large number of revolutions just did not work. Right. Well, it's a risk. Yeah. We're talking like 75%. Oh, is it that high? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would imagine. I mean, rebellions, revolutions, whatever. And But I want to also want to know, this is all the way back to like. Yeah. When they were recorded, like uh, on the papyrus and stuff but yeah yeah but but it's always 
a David and Goliath situation. Like, yeah, you're always going up against a bigger opponent. Yeah, I mean, they're the just by the nature of it being a revolution, you know, a government overthrow. You're the underdog, right? Right. And that's just the way it is. So I think that it's not shocking for sure, but it definitely. I think that's also part of what keeps them from being more frequent. I mean, your chance of oh, yeah, success that, is fair. low, right? You're, uh, there's a reason people don't fight back. And that reason is because they don't have the power to fight back. Mm. Right. right. They're at the deficit and they have everything to lose and no way yeah, I, to I, win. Really comes down to like, when you have nothing to lose, that's when you fight. Yeah. The hardest. And I think that's part of why this is such a, a moral struggle for me because I, I really feel like you should you should really try. I mean, obviously, we talked about the black and white situations, so that's aside. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you can still understand why some people, even in black and white situations, don't make the decision to rebel right. mm-hmm. because they have personal costs that they can't get over. Right. It feels different to sacrifice yourself versus to sacrifice your children. You know what I mean? And that sucks because that's, they use that, you know, but you can sympathize with them and why humanly they can't pay that price. Right. Everything feels like it's at a standstill because they either want to do something and can't because of the cost. Right. Or don't want to do something because they don't recognize the problem. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that from the outside in, we can make an easy judgment as to like, well, you should fight back. You know? right, 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 naturally. And that's easy to say. But the moral dilemma that comes in for me is like if you just take, for example, the American Revolution again. They they actually, they, so they tried a lot of different avenues, right? But they they were not as oppressed as some countries today are right. Right. Mm. But they fought back early. Does that make sense? They now logistically, they, they had a a better chance because of the distance between. Yeah. I was going to say the the crossing, the big blue was a a big difference back then than it is now. Yeah. Having somewhere to go. And the fact that they were already in like positions of power and largely out of reach. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Big we had some distinct advantages yeah. in our revolution that a lot of other countries don't have. I mean, they whatever they might be rebelling against their direct leader who lives, you know, who lives and maintains an army right on top right, of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to say, well, they made the right decision. But what I was getting at was timing. And that was recognizing the problem early could be pretty key. And I, I don't know that. For sure. I'm just, this is just an opinion here, but it just seems like to me, it makes sense. Now that doesn't solve people's problems who've been under oppression for, right, right. you know, hundreds of years because that problem is already there, but it does. I think it is worth talking about the fact that if you see things progressing, you have to be careful not to let them get to the point. Like we talked about earlier with, uh, secrecy and yeah, seeing you know security towards. over safety or safety over freedom and that kind of thing. Mm. If you let that progress far enough, it's going to get 
out of your control because you've already given away too much of your power. Take, for example, like Second Amendment, right? So like if you let that go far enough, you take away the power, you lose the power to fight back. And now we haven't talked about the Second Amendment. I'm not assuming how you guys feel. I would just say, in my opinion, like if if you're endangering that ability to defend yourself against the government, then you're taking, that's just another huge step, in my opinion, of taking the power away and placing it in the government's hands. And so you have less tools available. Now, I don't disagree. Yeah, no. But one of my problems with the, like, Second Amendment stuff is, like, the people that the government would use in the case of, like, actually fighting, because the only reason they would take away the guns, nefariously, I should say, um, is if they planned on attacking. And they would attack with people in a military with a military of volunteers that would not go on a tirade for them. Oh, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. I guarantee you everybody in the army and military, save for like a few hundred would not be on their side. Yeah. They, they've game planned this too, by the way, in, in, in military, uh, war games, they have, they have game planned, um, what, would happen and strategized how it would play out. And every time they do this war game, the government loses. Yeah. (laughs) Like it doesn't work. No. Yeah. It's not just that they wouldn't do your orders. Some of them, some of them would act completely normal. Like they're under your control of the government. Oh yeah, absolutely. And they would just be, Turn and shoot. Yeah. Yeah. They would just be uh, vulnerabilities in your military. They would turn around to be vulnerabilities because Mm -hmm. they would be uh, intentionally remaining in the military to sabotage your situation. And those who didn't would turn and use their expertise and their stolen materials to aid the, the rebellion yeah at that point anyway yeah yeah i no matter what I, like 98% of the military is on the civilian side no matter what happens they wouldn't pull the triggers yeah and no, absolutely not you know you we all know many people in the military and there's there's just no way they estimate that 75% which i think is low would very generous, they estimate yeah. sev- they think 25% will stay yeah yeah they think 25% would fight against their own citizens. Nah. And I just don't buy that. But even then, even at 75%. I thought 98% was no, low. Even at 75%, they lose every time. Like even at 75 Because even if you retain 25%, you can't trust that 25%. Yep. And so also, anti-government warfare in America is urban guerrilla warfare. Mm-hmm. And that is an unwinnable battle. Yes, absolutely. That is an unwinnable. They, For who? you and I know, we all know the the infrastructure and and vulnerabilities in infrastructure of the United States military. And for them to be able to operate continuously in on American yeah. soil with with guerrilla warfare surrounding them on every front in every city. Mm. 
they, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't build a bridge. They couldn't maintain supply yeah. lines. There's just, they would just be absolutely, they would be harassed into non-existence. Now it would be slow and it would be extremely painful, but there is no way they win. But that that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? So like the, say they're, they finally cross that line and they're like, we're taking away your guns. And they look at the military like they're go. They look at the National Guard and they're like, "Go take their guns." Yeah, go confiscate them. Go, go get those guns. And the National Guard just kind of, no. Yeah. I don't know what you want me to do because I'm not uh, doing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you want me to go change a tire? I'll go do that. Yeah. Because that's why you I mean, know it's a death sentence because you're like they're gonna shoot me. Mm-hmm. Not only do I not want to take their guns because I believe they need their guns and want their guns. I know they have guns and I know they're going to use them to keep them. Also know if I point mine at them and say, give me yours, I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I learned while being in the military. Which is why they try to take them away slowly and methodically. Yeah. Like that's, that's like, I mean, I didn't want to get too into it, but that's what I was thinking about. Like, that's why they sensationalize like all these shootings and everything. I mean, not that that. This stuff doesn't need to Even be heard. Even if but it were successful, the only reason they would take the, away the weapons is if they would, like, plan an attack, make you feel helpless. Mm-hmm. Look, I think we've had an Australian listen to this podcast before, so I don't want to upset you, whoever you are. <laughs> but have you seen the... So are you talking it about, just blows my mind. Are you talking about the... The gun, the buybacks, the turn-ins? Oh, no. Yeah, so they went. they went that way. And, and then they all turned in their weapons and stuff. And it's like, you just wouldn't think Australia. You wouldn't think Australia would just roll over, you know? And that just kind of blows my mind that the Outback is the first place. or not the first. That's it. But they are a notable place. Yeah. To, to, to say, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to turn them in. And I mean, a truckload after truckload, millions. The uh, well, I mean, the UK is disarmed too, right? Well, they've been disarmed for yeah, that's true, though. That's true, a long time. But one of the things I wanted to note, uh, most people in the military is one of the things I learned most people in the military aren't there because America, hurrah, kind of thing. Most people are there because they need a job or, yeah, are trying to go to school or. They're not there for the military. They're there because they have things they want to progress, and the military is a good avenue for it. Yeah. The military is the way it is created, structured, and educated fights against the government's ability to use it as a weapon. So, I mean, because when you get in there, it is camaraderie. It is love of countrymen. It is is everything. It is not – I mean, it is – it is blind obedience. Like it is. Oh yeah. I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm, yes. I'm not negating the fact that, that you are expected to follow orders. You don't understand, but done very well, by the way, that is not the impressed. same thing because orders to turn against your countrymen are things you do understand. That is not something that right, is ambiguous right. when you're asked to do it. Yeah. And so, um, I, isn't there a, correct me if I'm wrong, David, but, I, it's been a while, but I seem to remember that there is an out for immoral orders, for improper orders. What is that? Duty to disobey. 
if they consider the order itself to be illegal or unconstitutional. Yeah, so like you, like you said, a duty to disobey. And we're taught that. I, I remember being taught that. It, was, it, it couldn't all come to me, but I do remember. Civil disobedience. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Right. And and it even it talks about direct violations to the Constitution as well. I mean, there is a level of, of obedience that is demanded of soldiers, but there is also a level of a level of responsibility that's put on their shoulders to support the lawful nature of America. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm saying about the structure and the, the social environment of the military is very, is very citizen centric. It's very. Absolutely. I would say most people in the military, I don't want to say consider themselves a civilian because that's a, a mistake that could be taken in a mistaken way. But like, they don't see themselves as a tool being used. They see this as an opportunity to forward themselves their own objectives while also happening to help some. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's like combining your job with an ideology. Right. You know, but I, I think that they're very, it's a very human army. It's a very human military and trying to use that as a weapon against a, a it just doesn't work. The problem is, and I actually meant to get to this earlier, um, is at what I think that that would be a turning point because I was going to say at what moment is a rebellion popular enough for them to not shut it down? Like if they view people as terrorists, they're going to take care of it. Oh yeah. Okay. But you know, we talked about this blurred line between terrorism and yeah, yeah. and uh, rebellion and you know, the King's men in the American revolution would have viewed the revolutionaries as terrorists. Yeah. You know what I mean? Violators of the King. And so they were justified in their eyes of, of, of shooting of, of taking care of the problem. Right. So where does that in the mind of the soldier, you know, like where does that get complicated? Because when you have this rebellion, if it's not reached critical mass, I think that's the point. I was trying to get at. Oh, when when would a soldier be like, that's, yeah. no, like, he's right. Yeah, I think it would have to be at critical mass because if there is domestic terrorism, they wouldn't always just view that as rebellion. Right, right. right? Mm-hmm. And so there still can be a blurred line between um, when a soldier would and wouldn't, I think, take take turning a gun on their own citizen that they're protecting. Um, but by the time the military on mass 
like an isolated incident. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. It, an I isolated think- incident is going to be viewed as terrorism. But when it's en masse, the government orders are to turn the guns the other way. That's when they realize we've been had. <laughs> right? And now it's time. I think that's my view about how it would be. Honestly, it's really once you get, I would say, 10 people in a unit to like agree like yeah this isn't this isn't it so we're talking 10 out of 150 200 you they'll convince the rest yeah yeah it happens very quickly yeah like we're not we're not doing this especially if it's like already at that point where it's like so real and happening that oh yeah so touching back on that reference to critical mass I think that really it's important. So say if you're part of a revolution and you want this revolution and you need this revolution to repair your country or whatever, whatever it is. um, I think one of the biggest keys is going to be the spreading of ideas and ideology. Like we talk about fighting as a big part of this, but really you have to get that number up. Like you can't, yeah, you're not getting going, the people behind you. If it's just you and your core group, you're not going to start a revolution because the momentum behind you has to be building. And it it isn't going to happen because you take pot shots or or attack something. Like you have to you have to make that idea stick in the society. Yeah, you don't want to be like if and this is a kind of extreme situation, but if you died you don't want to die being a person that was a threat. You want to be a die a person that died fighting for what they believed in. Mm-hmm. Right. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, nobody wants to be buried as a terrorist. I mean, just realistically. Oh, yeah. Even if I was fighting a rebellion in the United States, like, I would, I would hope that I had spread the ideas enough or that I had been part of spreading the ideas enough that it wasn't just my gun that was doing the speaking for me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's just not, and of course we are idea people. Like that's just, you know, I think that would come with the territory naturally. Like I would be vocal. Now, of course that's easier to do when you're in an environment that allows you to be vocal. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless, whether it's like North Korea or Russia or America, you have to push that idea out and you have to get that idea. So it has to perpetuate. Yeah. It, it, it has to be like fermenting in the society and ready to go before yeah. you light that, that fuse. Right. And so I think it is kind of irresponsible to just throw whatever you have available at your, adversary your yeah, government yeah don't go into walmart scream out your opinion and then yeah. go to the white house and then throw a molotov yeah i mean that's just you know bombing senators houses none of that is productive in any way no. like you have to deal with your ideas before you deal with your oh, your absolutely. weapons and so that probably goes for you might have to do them simultaneously in certain situations, I would, I wouldn't disagree that like, I mean, if you have a government that is openly like genocidal, it's, it's time 
you like <laughs> yeah. do something. Right. Yeah. So obviously this is a a little bit of a subjective point of view as well because it depends on your situation. I mean, if you have a government that's like snatching your children because of their race or something, then obviously I I'm not going on a speech uh yeah, I'm yeah. tour <laughs> right, through right, the country. Right. I'm I'm gonna fight for the kids. So there is a balance there, but I I do think that it's something that has to be kept in mind. Yeah, once the government has crossed a line that you believe to be completely unjustifiable, acting as well as talking is probably a much better idea. Yeah. I watched this video essay on a comparison between the philosophy of revolution and a comparison to the movie V for Vendetta. And it was really, it was kind of neat the way that he did it and uh, explained all of the different uh, levels and how he goes from, because that's a transformation that happens in that movie. He goes from terrorist oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to building this, momentum and this movement and that's that's this transition and he talks about the personal responsibility about spreading your ideas because if you don't vocalize your reasons if you don't speak to to the others speak to the humanity and appeal to them for your support you know for their support that you're not you're not doing the entire job of a revolutionary. Well, I mean, imagine only part of it. Imagine if you were like, all right, guys, we're going to meet up here because of this. And then you go to meet up there without having explained any of the reasons. Yeah. How many people are going to show up? Right. Yeah. You have to be able to reach them. And, but you accept a responsibility that sort of places you in the column of terrorist. If you don't have that accountability to the idea. And that's, that's sort of what he was laying out in that video essay. He was like, if you, you know, once you spread that idea and you build that momentum, then you can take the weight of just being a terrorist and then move into being part of the movement, like shift into being part of the movement. And then it becomes, you know, once it becomes a, a communal idea, a, a, an entire revolution, then you're safe from that label, you know, and you're, it's not just you doing a thing right? against the yeah, government. People can label you as much as you want, but you have people behind you that believe you. Right. And, yeah. And completely like follow. Right. It also gives validity to your idea. If, I yeah, mean, yeah. If you go at it alone, people are going to look at you like you're crazy. Right. Yeah. And, but also for yourself, like the Unabomber didn't have support and, and ideological uh, reciprocation from him and someone else. Right. It's just like his own, right. Right. Own um, manic mind. And so he is viewed as a terrorist because he is a terrorist, but when you have ideas that go out, you know, we talk about this, we've talked about this in the past, the marketplace of ideas, mm-hmm. you know, 
it's almost like a laboratory and you, you take this revolutionary idea you have and you say, look, this is wrong and we can't stand for this, right? Well, if it's really not that bad, like if it's, if it's just mediocre and it can be solved with local voting or what, like whatever, if there's other solutions, then that society is going to take that idea and push it out. Or even and like it's not going to get absorbed and grow because l- it doesn't have validity. lower its impact. I guess and they'll be like, okay, yes, you're right, but we don't need to go that far. We can. Yeah, it's like it's like a litmus test. It's gonna when you take it into the society, it's either gonna grow or it's gonna diminish. Yeah, and if it if if it's diminishing, then your body isn't ready for the idea, right? Mm-hmm. Now, your idea may be right, possibly. Uh, it, it could be wrong as well. But it it means that you're not going to build, like you're not going to have the support and you're just going to be alone in this mission. Now you can decide whether what you want to do with that, you know. So. I think we've taken this episode off on all kinds of tangents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's okay. <clears throat> so. Do you guys feel like anything really shifted? I mean, I, I don't I th- know. I think my view on when I first started, before I started research, I didn't know that revolutions failed as much as they did. Uh, so my, I don't want to say it was like hair trigger with it, but it was like, I could see revolutions happening more often. And didn't really understand why. Uh, now I like really understand. <laughs> After doing all the research, I understand that. Well, let me take that back. Overthrowing a government and revolutions are different. Uh, and when I started my research, I was researching revolutions. Fair enough. Because overthrowing a government is hard reset. Yeah. Whereas a revolution is a changing the constituents within. Really? I would have thought it was the other way around. Overthrowing the government is pretty much a hard reset. You're, You're unhappy with how the government works. Yeah. In a hundred percent capacity, and like it needs to change. It's a hard reset. It's yeah. a, it's a strip it down to nothing, and do and, a rebuild and put something in its place. Yeah. And you, what you're saying is, uh, a revolution can consist of you're not representing us properly. We're gonna fight back, and then we're gonna get somebody who represent us a little better. Yeah. Or represent us better, and that's their idea of of revolution. And I, and I get, I you know, I'm, yeah, I, it's a good distinction to make. I don't, I didn't make that distinction, especially throughout this episode, but I think it's good to point out because there are different distances that each revolution is willing to go. Oh, absolutely, and um reaching that deep down and starting over from scratch 
is actually a risky one. And so a lot of, a lot of, gov- a lot of revolutions avoid that because of the, of what can come out of it is so unpredictable. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> There's no telling that you're going to come out like we did out of, out of our conventions, you know, and it, yeah. <laughs> after the revolution and there could have been so many missteps where we could have made the wrong choices and ended up in not the type of government we should have had. And so you, it's very difficult for citizens to trust the revolutionaries who come behind them, who now hold the power. Yeah. And that's a real and legitimate fear, you know? But yeah, the, my idea for overthrowing a government and, revolutions were very intertwined before I started the research. And then after the research, everything made more sense. And I realized overthrowing a government, not really an option that many times out of like out of a hundred less than one. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, that's basically where I ended up where it was. There's a point, but it's very minuscule, very, very minuscule. What about you, Sean? Do you feel like anything shifted for you? No, I don't think anything changed about how I feel, really. Uh, I guess I have a more clear perspective, but that's that's about it. I, I feel like I had the right feeling to begin with. I feel like I'm on the same page. I feel like I've fleshed out my idea. Yeah, exactly. But... I, I don't think that I, I really made any uh, headway in a new direction. But, I mean, that's what you have to do sometimes is you have to clarify your position and you have to sort of answer questions that you hadn't asked yourself before. Right. And, like, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but at this point, I mean, sort of just follow my gut about these kind of things, you know, and... uh not that I don't know or like have like actual knowledge on the subjects, but it's a lot of circumstantial stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there are so many things that the government could do wrong or do right. And you just kind of have to weigh the balance between the two. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many variables, personal variables, you know, very, like you said, variables in the government yeah. and their, strengths and their control and and risk assessment and all, all those things come into play together and you say well what's the right decision for me you know so but yeah I, I'm with you Sean I feel like I just um, I just sort of took a magnifying glass to the way I felt <laughs> right, right. and that's all I, it's all yeah, I really did yeah um, so I don't know about you listeners if you feel any different about the risks or the ethics behind supporting a rebellion or, or a, overthrowing a, a government. Apparently mm-hmm. how we discussed uh, the feasibility of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Or how we just ran in tangents all day long. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know what? You signed up for this ride and, uh, and it's almost too. over. So just hold on. <laughs> yeah, we did too. If you will. Find us on Facebook at Kenner Encounter Podcast. Send us a message there with any questions, and please send us your favorite song. And if you have anything you want us to talk about, you can go to kenderencounter.com slash submit. 
And there's a box you can type it into there. Uh, please, please send it to us. I'm begging you. Sean's on his knees right now. All right. He pushed his chair back. <laughs> <in everybody. laughs> right. We need him. Yeah, we love new topics. And guys, if you are on our website, if you go to the top, there's a Podchaser link. You can click on that and you can leave us a review and you can tell us that you don't like us or you can tell us <laughs> that you love us or you can tell us to be more quiet because we're too loud. I don't know. I don't care what you tell us. But if you click on that link, just tell us something and then click on five of those little pointy things and then and then, and then we're cool. that. Yeah. And go on Apple Podcasts, do the same thing, send us a review. Let us know what you think. We value your opinion. Um, I have to say that. That's just like part of this deal. I don't really, but I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I love you guys. As always, we love you as a human being. So until next time. Take it easy. R E E L. R E L. If you'll go to the R E L round table. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? I hated that. <laughs>